feature Preston. Thank you. Now, man, you know, I wonder um, if someone in Preston's. Am I supposed to do something? Is that a timer? Is it going to explode when I'm done? Someone in Preston's class, right? Can you picture this? I mean, I've already got this story. Preston writes this poem in class. Are you, you're in third grade, Preston, right? Second. Second grade. So second grade class. Some kid, you know, as an adult, thinks back to, to, to people and stories in his life that made a difference. And Preston writes this, this poem, right, in his second grade class. And that kid, whoever they are, maybe they are living on the other side of the world, but they remember Preston and his poem. I mean, when they're an old person, you know, they'll recall, oh man, there was this kid in my second grade classroom named Preston, and he wrote this poem, and that poem changed my life. And that kid doesn't even know that now. Doesn't even know that yet. But somewhere that's going to connect. How many of you, raise your hand if you've heard the name Edward Lorenz. <laughs> Nobody knows Edward? Edward Lorenz? 1963. Edward Lorenz was speaking to the New York Science of Academy of Arts. And he, uh, he proposes this theory. It was, it's born in the chaos theory. It's this theory of molecular chaos and all this stuff going on around the world. And Edward, Edward Lorenz says... I believe in the butterfly effect. I might have told you, I I hope I didn't tell you guys this story uh, before, but it's a great story, right? So this butterfly effect, Edward Lorenz, 1963, and he was kind of laughed off the stage. And the guy's a molecular biology kind of, you know, one of those guys, right? I can't even say his stuff. I can't even say all that stuff. So 1963, Edward Lorenz, the butterfly effect, laughed off the stage. 30 years later, Scientists and professors and universities are clamoring. All of a sudden, the butterfly effect becomes known as the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Don't you love that? Right from the butterfly effect to the law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. And you know what's really funny about that? Is I think God is the author of that law. Like he has so many laws that we don't even know yet. But, but as we think about that, and as we uncover it, we see that really God authored the whole thing. It's kind of one of his, uh, his geniuses, because it's really all about how one thing affects another, and it's all about the story. Because, like it or not, all of our stories, every, every one of the billions of people in the world that has lived and is living now and will ever live, is touched by the beginning story of Adam and Eve. And then it all filters down, and all of those stories, they all intertwine. How many of you heard, have heard of Edward Borlaug? Edward, I mean, sorry, not Edward, that was Edward Lorenz. Norman Borlaug. Have you heard of Norman Borlaug? Norman Borlaug, in 2004, was ABC's Person of the Week. Norman Borlaug was born in... Uh, in 1914, March 25th, 1914. And, uh, and so when he, in 2004, he was 90 years old. It was his 90th birthday. And he was, uh, he was celebrated at the White House for what he had done. Norman Borlaug is the guy that is credited for beginning what's known as the Green Revolution. He was a botanist, a scientist, a doctor who studied plants. And he's really the guy who, who uh, uh, in the uh, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 
uh, was stationed in Mexico. He was sent to Mexico and he created and developed these strands of, of, of crops, wheat, corn, crops that were, uh, were drought resistant. And you know, I grew up in Kansas, so we've got this wheat, you know, that's this high. And in the summer when it's ready to harvest, you, you walk out through it and it's wait, amber waves of grain, you know. I remember those songs. But, uh, but, but Norman Borlaug said, uh, you know, shorter wheat is, uh, is much more capable of, of taking less water. And so he developed all this stuff. Credited for saving at that point in 2004 about 2 billion people because of the crops he produced by 2004. 90 years old, 2 billion people had been saved from hunger because of this guy. Norman Borlaug, right? And so he saved 2 billion people. But really, maybe it wasn't Norman Borlaug at all. Maybe it was Henry Wallace who saved those 2 billion people. You heard of Henry Wallace? You haven't heard of Henry Wallace? Well, Henry Wallace was the vice president for, uh, for President Roosevelt in 1940. And Henry Wallace also had grown up in an agriculture family, grew up in Iowa. His dad was a professor at Iowa State University. And Henry Wallace, before he became the vice president, was the, uh, was the uh, what do you call those guys, the uh, department head for the Department of Agriculture. Right? So he knew a lot about crops too, and he knew Borlaug was kind of a pioneer thinker. So he, Henry Wallace, sent Norman Borlaug on this mission to Mexico where all this began to happen with the hybridization of these seeds. So you see, maybe it was really Henry Wallace, right? Because he's the one who ushered Norman Borlaug into that role. So Norman Borlaug. But no, maybe it was Henry Wallace. But maybe it was Henry Wallace's dad, really. Because he was a professor at Iowa State University, right? And uh, he also was a crop guy, botany guy. Um, but he had a student there one time um, who, uh, this student was 19 years old, black student who'd come to Iowa State University who, who actually was there because of a lady named Etta Budd who was a, a student at a, a place called Simpson College, I think. And, and this young black student, 19 years old, 18 years old, 17 years old, was studying art. He loved to paint pictures of flowers and plants and stuff. And Etta Budd actually encouraged him to go to Iowa State. And he, so he went to Iowa State and began to study under Mr. Wallace, Professor Wallace. But Professor Wallace had a six-year-old son named Henry who this young black man would spend weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, out at his professor's house, and, and, and he would walk through these fields and teach this young six-year-old boy, the professor's boy, about botany and all these things he was learning in his classes. Right? So it's really the professor, because the professor's son was named Henry Wallace. At six years old. He was walking through fields in Iowa learning about botany and all these plants and all this stuff with this young 19-year-old black man named George Washington Carver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the story just kind of goes on. 
But we heard some stories in class this morning. Happy Danes and Holy Danes. We heard about, I heard in one, one, one group, um, stories about grandpas and grandmas. Uh, heard a got a pee story. You know, traveling stories with little kids. You know, having to stop every 10 miles, right? And, uh, and the sugar table. Where's that hat? Where's that hat? Oh, look at that hat. The sugar table. He didn't tell you about the sugar table when he was a kid. And that hat, you know whose hat that was? It was his grandpa's hat. Yeah, all, all around this room there are stories, there are connections, there are lives that intertwine with one another. What about your story, our story? Where, does, where do they intersect with God? Where did we come from and how did we get here? Oh, and the people and the things and the places that pull us all together and bring us here today. And who knows what the outcome of today is? I don't know. Who were and are the characters that have played or are playing roles in our story What about the story itself? In the beginning, God. And Adam and Eve. Disastrous end. Disastrous end. But was it? But was it? Do you not be listening to this uh, uh, author, uh, composer, or singer, um, Andrea Saad. And uh, and uh, there's a, there's a, uh, it's not a theory, philosophy, it's teaching, it's, it's truth, right? Um, and Andre Assad brings this idea out that, that the fall of Adam and Eve was actually a fortunate fall. And that's what's one of her songs, it's called Fortunate Fall. And, uh, and so she, she looks at, at the fall of Adam and Eve as a, an incredible blessing. And was, think about it. It is, right? Because we, we just sang about uh, blessed, where would all of that have gone had it not been for the fall, the blessings that, that are poured out in the world today? And certainly we look at that and think, wow, you know, what would it have been differently? And we can't really imagine, but we can imagine what it is as it is. And it was a fortunate fall because it ushered in Jesus, Right? In the beginning, God and Adam, Adam and Eve. Noah. Noah. Who are the people that touched that guy? Right? That guy was a swimmer, wasn't he? Actually, he was a floater. Right? Right? He was a boat builder. Incredible boat builder. And then, uh, uh, how, about, how about Abraham? Do you, do you know what I about Abraham this morning? Was, not 90 years old. Hey, Abraham. Leave Ur of the Chaldees. Leave your homeland and go... Where? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Just go. I'll show you. Right? 90. And, uh, and Isaac. And Jacob. And Esau. The hairy one. And a pot of stew. And all of the things that go into those stories. And, and, and uh, the kings. All of the kings that we read about. And, and the prophets. And laws. 
Oh, they're the laws. And the sacrifices. The burning bush. Moses in the burning bush. And, uh, and he kills, a, he kills uh, a, a soldier in Egypt, right? I mean, he grew up in the basket and the, and the river, the Nile River. All of those stories that we read about and all of those stories filter down to us, right? And the judges and the prophets and the Savior, right smack dab in the big middle of history, enters Jesus, right? The baby. And even that story, we, you know, last uh, in December, you know, at Christmas, and the whole world, man, talks about that story. The Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus and his entrance into the world. And then Jesus and, and the story of the crucifixion and Easter. And then, uh, and then the apostles. And then there's Peter and James and John and, and Paul. And I was, again, Gina, Gina had a, it seemed like we talked like hours this morning, doesn't it? I was, right, but we didn't. Uh, but I was telling her that uh, as we were talking about this, this story, the kind of the idea uh, of this morning is, is getting us to see our significance. Because sometimes we might see ourselves as somewhat insignificant, but we're not. We're not. So Acts chapter 9, there's a story about this guy. This guy who is in this town named Damascus. None of us have ever been to Damascus. You've never been to Israel. You've raised your hand if I asked you that, right? So I know you've never been to Damascus. Because that's where, uh, it, because uh, Damascus is in Israel. So this guy's in Damascus years and years ago. And, uh, and this is a little, uh, he's probably a young adult, but when he was a young man, he was, uh, he was responsible for killing, for killing believers in the Savior, for, for killing Jesus. He stood during the steeping of a young guy named uh, Stephen when he was being stoned, and he was throwing, they were throwing rocks at Stephen until he died. And, uh, and so, so this guy's name was Saul, right, and he's in Damascus, and he's become a believer at this point. His story changed, didn't it? His story's way different. And in Acts chapter 9, he's in Damascus, and some of the people had taken him in, but some of them were very leery of him. They were scared of this guy because he was a murderer of their community. Right? Right? And so it says that, that there was a plot to take Paul because he was becoming powerful and popular as he was preaching about Jesus. And then it says... There were some people who helped him escape. I think the uh, New American Center talks about uh, a rope. They let him down through a basket over the city walls. Who held the rope? You don't know. And I don't either. Were they significant in the story? Yes. That's what people might say about me. as an insignificant guy from Loveland, Colorado. That's, that's just us, right? We, we don't see the roles we play sometimes, and that's okay. Because in God's eyes, that's a very significant role, because Paul escaped, and off he went to Tarsus, and you know, all those other places, to Greece, and, and you know, he heard the Macedonian call, and off he went. And he did all this stuff. 
And it's part of the story. Part of the butterfly effect, right? The law of sensitive dependence on initial conditions. See, God set it all into effect. In, uh, in my old Bible, my, uh, my oldest daughter has it now. JC has this Bible up in Seattle. At least I think she's got it. Um, I gave it to her when she was baptized. And in that Bible is, uh, is that question. And I remembered that this morning. I hadn't thought about that Bible for a long time, but, but it's part of that story, right? It's part of JC's story. And in that Bible, next to Acts chapter 9, is who held the rope? That, just that question, who held the rope? I thought, wow, I hadn't thought about that for years and years and years. But as I remember that Bible, last week we were talking about that Bible to Angela Nichols. And that was a Bible that Gina gave me when we were at OCC, and it was kind of, we were starting to date, and she gave me this Bible. It was a red maroon, uh, it was called the Open Bible, I think. And, uh, and we're telling Angela, this is kind of a funny story, we were down in Trojan Park uh, one morning praying and talking, and, and, uh, and uh, um, a mosquito landed on, uh, in the book of James. And, uh, and I flicked that mosquito, and it left blood on the book of James. I remember that, that's in that Bible, Right? It's part of the story, a chain of events, a symbol, a, a thing in, uh, in our lives. And it goes on. The church, after the apostles and their story was played out and ended, or has it? And the Crusades and the Revolution and the Reformation... And I was reminded of, uh, of the Reformation this morning in the class when, when uh, um, uh, who was talking about? Ron was talking about the Happy Danes and Holy Danes. And he was talking about growing up as a Luther. And I thought about Martin Luther and the Reformation and some things I've read about that recently. And, 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 and the story of, of that guy standing up against uh, people and institutions. And I thought about immigration and you know my family and yours and we've all immigrated to this country you know from somewhere you know uh, it all has happened and here we are part of this story and churches all around the, the, the nation and, and your homes and houses where, where you've heard the story your parents just like in Deuteronomy some of your parents and some of your parents never told you these stories you know when the, when the scripture says here in, in, in Deuteronomy 6 for hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And put them in your mezuzahs. This is a mezuzah. It's what, they, it's what the Jews put on their doorposts to hold what's called the Shema. That reminds them of their story, of who they are. They roll up a little scroll in here that is this passage, actually. The Shema. This reminder of who you are. So every time they go into a door and they come out of a door, they see that and they think of their story. Your life and my life, your story and my story, are the mezuzahs, the container for God's story today. That's it, and not one of them is insignificant. 
Not one breath we take or word we speak is insignificant. And that's the Matthew 22 passage when, when Jesus says, he was quite being questioned, hey, which is the greatest commandment, right? What a question, you know? Because I'm going to keep them all, right? Now, Jesus kind of countered that whole thing and said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, so our story, our story now is greatly simplified, right? But it's still the story of how we love people. It comes back to the 1 Corinthians 13 that that old guy Paul wrote about when he defined what love is. It's patient and kind and doesn't keep record of wrongs. And, and that's the way we love people. We love people like Jesus loved people. And wow! Does that affect their story? Wow, does that affect their life? Yes, in incredible ways it affects them. And here we are, part of a story playing out with that great single command. How's your story going? Who's responsible? Who are you responsible for? We may never know. We may be like Norman Borlaug. Henry Wallace. I don't know that they knew when they died. And I don't know, I, I think, uh, I don't know when Norman Borlaug died, and I don't know about Henry Wallace either. And I didn't even know when George Washington Carver died. Do you remember him? We mentioned him earlier, right? Um, but maybe it wasn't George Washington Carver after all, who, after that butterfly effect is all said and done, the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. Maybe it was not George Washington Carver who was responsible for all those two billion lives. It perhaps was a farmer from Diamond, Missouri who saved those two billion people. And probably by now five billion. A farmer from Diamond, Missouri named Moses. Or maybe it was his wife Susan They lived in the slave states. Moses and Susan did. They were German farmers. They didn't believe in slavery. They were known as sympathizers. One cold winter night, Quantrill's raiders came to Moses and Susan's farm and they burned the barn. They shot several people and they dragged a woman and her infant son Mary Washington and that baby off during that cold winter night in northwest Missouri. Mary Washington was Susan's best friend. And Susan, giving that wife-convincing, arm-bending technique convinces Moses to write letters, to send word, to try to get in touch with Quantrill's raiders. To arrange a meeting and to try to get Mary and her baby back. And a few days later, it happened. Within a few days, a meeting was set. And on a cold January night, 
Moses set out. He walks through the night the next day to a crossroads in Kansas where he met four of Quantrill's men. And there he was, Moses. He had taken along with him a racehorse valued at $300. It was all he had left after their raid. And there he traded Quantrill's men for a burlap bag that wasn't moving. They threw the bag and he gave him the horse and there in the freezing dark cold of a Kansas winter night his breath vapor blowing hard Moses took out of that bag a cold naked almost dead baby boy He opened up his jacket and he pulled that baby close to his body, put his jacket back and he began to walk. Walk back to his house in Diamond, Missouri. Every step of the way he promised that baby he would take care of him as own, as his own and promised to educate him and to honor Mary, his mother, who he knew was dead. That night the farmer told the baby boy he'd give him his last name. And that is how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise that little baby, George Washington Carver. So there it is. A farmer and his wife from Diamond, Missouri who saved those two billion people. Or was it? Who really knows where the stories begin and where they end? Who really knows where our own stories begin, began and where they'll end? I think I told you a couple weeks ago when we talked about Nia that, uh, that I think this is my, I'll give you my interpretation of heaven, what I see it's going to be like. I, I, I kind of really had a hard time in my life getting around the ivory, you know, and the pearls and and the golden streets, you know, it's kind of not my deal, right? Uh, uh, but I kind of see it as, as a big story time. You know, sitting by the river or the campfire and, and stories being told. Stories. And being there with my grandpa and my grandma. Well, maybe not so much my grandma. My grandpa. Right? right? And uh, my great-grandpa who homesteaded property in, in northwest Oklahoma and... and uh, and then my grandpa, who was born in a dugout on that property, and then my, my, uh, my dad and his brothers who were born in a little house on that same property, right? And, and they're all around this campfire, and they're all talking, or, you know, whatever that looks like in heaven, I don't know, but it's not going to be pearl and gold, okay? And but we're telling stories. And all of these stories, this is because I think it's going to take eternity to go back to Adam and Eve. But I think by the time eternity has begun... Uh, you know, somewhere in the middle of it, I'll begin to, to understand, wow, so that happened and that happened. And that's how I'm really connected to Paul, the apostle. And that's how I'm connected to Peter, who I really love. And John, oh, the apostle John, who had breakfast with Jesus on that shore by the lake and he cooked charcoal fish. And, 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 and 
Moses and Abraham and all those guys and Adam and Eve, I see now how my life is connected with those guys and their stories. And not one piece of it is insignificant. Our stories, your story, today, what you do and what you say, Preston, what you did last week, who knows where that story's going? That is a great thing to know, right? The actions of tonight, tomorrow night, the next day and the next. Every breath, every time we have an opportunity to love somebody is part of our story. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Norman Borlaug and for Edward Lorenz and for Henry Wallace and George Carver and, uh, and thank you so much for all the stories in this room, for every single one, for sugar tables and hats, and for holy Danes and, and happy Danes. And uh, God, for all of the opportunities that you're going to give us today, thank you for those, for all the, uh, the people that you have given us to love and you will give us to love. And, and to fulfill the, the, the words of, of Jesus, the directives that he gave us. To love you and our neighbors like we love ourselves. Um, thank you for that directive and thank you for that promise. And thank you for these opportunities. And God, we pray that you help us to write these stories on our hearts and give them to our kids. And God, we look forward to, to seeing how they all intertwine in eternity. God, thank you for loving us and for beginning this great story who seems to have no end. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please stand with me.